Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 27 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 4th of August. And Leon, this week we're talking to Stephen Arthur of Desk Space. Stephen Arthur is the founder of Australia's first ever co-working space. So it's going to be talking to us all about that. It's in Darlinghurst, New South Wales, and by the look of it, it's very swish. And uh, this week, we're talking to economist Saul Eslake. And there's a lot to talk about. All right, now let's listen to Stephen Arthur. Stephen, tell us about this space. So uh, space is a, a purpose-built environment for entrepreneurs and startups. Uh, started back in 2009 and um, we're based in Darlinghurst. And uh, so tell us, how does it work? So basically, uh, there's three types of customers that, or, or members we like to refer to them as uh, that uh, work within Despace. And one is uh, the freelancer or um, the service provider. Uh, the other is the startup or entrepreneur. And the last customer is, I call them cornerstones. So they're uh, established businesses that um, uh, some of which have a global presence uh, or a um, they're an established business essentially. It is a shared co-working space. Uh, yes, that's correct. Sorry. Um, so essentially, we like to th- think of ourselves as a hybrid of co-working and uh, an incubator. So we have space as a resource, but we also have services. Our offering is. Uh, a little more developed than the conventional co-working space being that what we like to do is uh, offer uh, solutions uh, as well as offering space. So initially a a business will come through, we take them through an induction process, we find out what kind of pain points or or essentially what status the business is in and we then try to make connections within the space to help them uh, develop the business further. And I'd imagine uh, that would also facilitate a lot of collaboration between the businesses as well, being in all sharing that space together, wouldn't it? Well, I think that's the primary offering that any co-working space should offer is collaboration. I think that if you're working within proximity, that the people that surround you should be there to empower you in the in the, uh, in the vision or the journey that you're on. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's an extremely important part of um, co-working, I believe. So, Stephen, do you, uh, your outfit do any mentoring or is it the conversation on the floor that uh, works that way? Well, we, we do offer a mentoring service, but essentially it's, it's, it's a bespoke offering. So what we try not to do is, is um, position someone in a cookie-cutter process. So a lot of the uh, incubator programs, they seem to run a similar method for every business that goes through their program. My belief is that each business needs to a, needs a tailored solution and that depending on the position or the, uh, how established the business is, it will require different services, different types of advisors, different mentors, and perhaps uh, different funding options. So uh, what type of businesses are are in there? Um, Actually, we've got large global companies like Deliveroo, the food ordering service, uh, all the way down to small independent startups, so early stage businesses. There's no set vertical, so we're not specifically focused on fintech or um, food and hospitality. We're essentially open to all ideas. Essentially, it's about attitude of the the founder, the uh, opportunity or the objective, and also just a similarity or symmetry in in uh, culture. So we like to find people who essentially have you know no ego. No politics is something that we often tell people when they're starting in the space. 
And the idea is that uh, there's an abundance of opportunity and, and we can all prosper from that. Um, so what we like to consider ourselves is a uh, sharing economy of IP. So we, we, we basically have all these great people in here, some of them are best in class. And the idea is that you can leverage off their experience and skill sets and hopefully um, that gives you a greater opportunity to succeed in what you're doing. So it's risk mitigation, essentially. Deliveroo, having Deliveroo on board is very interesting because it's a well-established uh, company. I mean, it started out in London and it's going quite well, but they see the need to cooperate or, or work in an environment such as yours. How does that work? Well, I actually think that co-working is just a, a new format for the corporate environment. I don't necessarily see it as necessarily a lily pad. I think a lot of spaces establish themselves around early stage startups, but what do you do with those businesses when they grow? So what we try to do is offer a full end-to-end, -end, and, and that will still be available to someone with an established business and a pre-existing roadmap, um, but also down all the way, it's, a, it's appropriate, sorry, down all the way to an early stage startup and an individual. Uh, when Deliveroo first moved into the office, they, they only had three to four staff. So obviously the flexibility of the rental model is attractive to them because they can scale the team up as they need it. Uh, the other aspect to that is that there's a lot of established networks. So whilst they're an overseas company and they, they were employing people locally, uh, some of the existing members within the space had contacts within all the uh, potential vendors and partners that they were working with. So, as I said, there's a, a value add outside of just the bricks and mortar of an office. So, I mean, with these independent specialists, I believe you also have um, the Singapore-based reservation at uh, Quandu there as well. Is that right? Well, we yes, we had Quandu. So Quandu came in and they did start um, in, in the office, but I think they've moved into their own premise. Uh, we also had Airbnb start in here as well. So what, what's great about that for us is the learnings. So essentially uh, what... Uh, one of the things we identified when these larger corporations moved through is that there's a relatively unsophisticated approach. Uh, a lot of salespeople essentially making cold calls and, and, and making appointments. And, and it's, it's, it's great for some of the early stage startups to see that um, entering a new territory perhaps is, is, is not as, challenge, as challenging as, as, as they may think it is. It can be some very conventional methods used to um, move into a, a, a new territory, a new location. So... Um, you know, moving overseas isn't as daunting as perhaps they might think it is. I, I would also imagine that there would be an, a really great buzz of energy working among all these other startups as well. Well, I think that energy is contagious. It's really important to see others working just as hard, going through the same uh, pain points. You know, there's always adversity in, in startups and, uh, you know, seeing others meet those challenges and, and, and as I said, it's a very... Uh, contagious culture. I think it's really important to share that experience with others because there are, there are times when, you know, startups essentially they just read a point where perhaps they, you know, they just don't see a way forward. So, you know, and I always say to them, look, perseverance is key. You know, there's always going to be pain points and even established businesses go through these stages of growth. It, it will happen again, essentially. You just have to find a way to either, you know, I always say you pivot, climb, burrow, whatever you need to do to move forward, essentially, you, you know, perseverance is number one. Tell us about this flexible rental model. Well, I think that's sort of the backbone of co-working is this idea of compartmentalized rental model. So when I first started, uh, I also looked at that as a business, essentially every aspect of, of what I do and, and, and the businesses that I'm involved with, they have to be self-sufficient. So what I, what I wanted to do was surround myself with other creatives and, and, and obviously needed a premise to, to do that. And um, Obviously, with the rental prices of Sydney, it's it's something that I couldn't bankroll on my own. So I looked at 
sharing the space with others and, and, and looked at the, a way in which it uh, can make that feasible. So essentially it's the idea of taking a master lease and, and slicing that space up into a, a number of smaller areas and renting it out as a premium. I think one of the major hurdles for us right now is essentially looking at how we can take our framework and multiply it. I think success for desk space is the byproduct of what we create. And that is obviously new startups and the success of those startups. We're not a business that's driven by occupancy. Uh, we're essentially, for, for me, I have a, a very strong vested interest in most of the members that are, well, all of the members essentially, whether it be financial or emotional, but essentially the main thing for me is to make sure that everybody has all the resources that they need to to take the business to the next level. So I'm quite happy with the capacity that we have in Darlinghurst. We're at a 150 full-time members at this stage. Uh, we are looking at a, a, an event space which will be used for activations and obviously that will increase our headcount and, and bandwidth. I'd say the next location for us perhaps might be abroad. You know, we're looking at um, developing the next stage of our network is to give us a line of sight essentially in a, in a larger market, be it the UK or the US. That's going to happen this year. Uh, depending on uh, current commitments, we we have a KPI this year to establish another location. So working towards it at the moment, and we're just deciding uh, where that location is best for us. Well, well, Steve, look, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Sharing space, you're not paying rent. Well, you're paying rent, but only as much as you need. And now Saul. Saul, it's like the RBA kept the interest rates on hold, but it issued a warning about the Australian dollar and the impact of Amazon. Uh, what's your view about that? Well, it reflects the dilemma the Reserve Bank now finds itself in with the inflation rate lower than it wants it to be, unemployment and underemployment higher than it wants it to be, economic growth more broadly weaker than the Reserve Bank wants it to be, and after more than a year of warning that an appreciating exchange rate would complicate the Reserve Bank's ability to achieve its multiple objectives for growth, unemployment and inflation, it now finds itself in a position where the currency is at its highest level against the US dollar for more than two years, nudging 80 cents. And unlike earlier periods when the obvious response to unwelcome strength in the currency was to cut interest rates, with interest rates now at a record low and heightened focus on some of the risks associated with an extended period of very low interest rates, such as runaway house prices and very high levels of household debt, the Reserve Bank doesn't really see cutting interest rates any further as being a feasible option. So there's not much else that they can do other than issue warnings like this. But the markets know that the Reserve Bank doesn't really have much firepower to act on its warnings. And so the currency has remained pretty close to the levels it was trading at before this week's Reserve Bank board meeting, even after the change in the language used in the post-board meeting statement from the governor. It's at about 80 cents. I mean, there's speculation it could go up as high as 85 cents. I mean, what's your view about that? Well, it is, uh, as you say, speculation and getting the currency right in the last few years has been very difficult. Speaking only for myself, I have long expected the currency to go down to the low 70s or even a little bit below, but it stubbornly refused to do that. It's pretty clear what's behind the most recent appreciation of the Australian dollar from about 76 cents to close to 80 cents. It's been the depreciation of the US dollar by roughly the same order of magnitude against almost all major currencies around the world. And that in turn reflects the 
the growing sense on the part of the currency markets and the bond market, though interestingly not yet the share market, that Donald Trump's promises of pushing US economic growth back to something like 4%, forcing the Federal Reserve in turn to speed up the pace of normalisation of US interest rates, those promises aren't going to be delivered on because of the sheer incompetence of the Trump administration and its inability to get legislation through the Congress, despite the fact that the Republican Party holds clear majorities in both houses of Congress. Now, as I say, it is interesting that the share market still believes that Donald Trump will make America great again in an economic sense, if not in any other. But the share market, the, the bond market and the currency markets, both of which also bought that proposition for about three months after Trump's election in November last year, increasingly disbelieving that prospect. So the US dollar is falling against other currencies, of which ours is but one. And as a result, our currency is rising against the US dollar. And it's also, of course, rising against other currencies that are more or less pegged to the US dollar, such as many of those in Asia, including the Chinese currency. It's a problem for us in two important respects. One, of course, is that a stronger dollar makes imported goods and services cheaper. Now, in many instances, that's something that consumers would welcome. But when inflation is running below the bottom end of the Reserve Bank's 2 to 3% target band, when the Reserve Bank is saying that it wants to get the inflation rate up, having a new source of downward pressure on inflation is most unhelpful. The second thing, of course, is that in the aftermath of the peak in the mining boom, we are trying to engineer alternative sources of growth in exports, manufactured goods, services, agricultural products and the like. And a stronger currency, especially against Asian currencies, is most unhelpful in that regard. So uh, the Reserve Bank has been saying for more than a year that a stronger currency would complicate the adjustment task that the Australian economy faces. And now those warnings are coming to pass without it being at all obvious what op options are open to the Reserve Bank for responding in any sort of effective way. The issue with inflation is quite key. And what was interesting with the Reserve Bank's statement is that it actually singled out the impact of Amazon on inflation here. Uh, that's right. Of course, uh, retail prices, prices of things that people buy in stores or online, are a key element of consumer price inflation. So the prospect of a new significant competitor in the Australian retail industry changing potentially radically the way in which retail trade is carried on and putting further downward pressure on prices is just another headwind that the Reserve Bank has to contemplate as part of its efforts to get the inflation rate up to the 2 to 3% target band that it's long been targeting. Another issue which the Reserve Bank has been vocal about in recent months has been the persistence of low wages growth, which if you think about labour costs are a major part of business costs overall, and as well as, of course, being a major source of people's incomes. And unusually for the head of a central bank, uh, Phil Lowe has been, in almost as many words, encouraging workers to demand bigger wage increases uh, as one way, presumably not only of boosting household incomes and hence spending and economic growth, but also contributing to higher inflation, which from where we are at the moment is something that the Reserve Bank wants to see. Oh, that's interesting, particularly in light of the Hilda survey, which found that Australians are stuck in something of a rut at the moment with the stagnant income growth and rising house prices. Yes, and this has all played into the 
political debate about inequality that's been getting much greater attention around the world ever since the global financial crisis, if not before, but in the last year or so has also become a focus of attention in Australia. And I think that concern about inequality becomes more acute when most people are experiencing no improvement in their own standard of living. I mean, to put it Crudely, if 90% of the population's incomes are growing by, say, 5 to 10% per annum, and the top 10%'s incomes are growing by 15 to 20% per annum, that's obviously generating increased inequality. But it's easier to live with from the perspective of the bottom 90% than a situation where the bottom 90% are not seeing their incomes go anywhere, while the top 10% might be seeing their incomes rise by 5 to 10%. When most people's incomes are stagnating, the fact that some people's incomes are continuing to grow, stands out more starkly and is more a source of angst and anger than a circumstance where everyone's incomes are rising, but at different rates. And I think that has sharpened the focus in the Australian political debate about inequality. And again, the Reserve Bank has had something to say about that, noting contrary to assertions that have been made by some in the government, that inequality has risen over the last decade, two decades and three decades, Phil Lowe said in answer to questions after a speech in late July. And I think he's right about that. And it is interesting that inequality now seems to have become more of a political issue than it has been in Australia for a very long time. Of course, so you have uh, young people are now condemned, seem to be condemned to living a life of as renters because they won't be able to buy houses. Uh, that's right. That's something that I've been talking about for a very long time and it has gained a renewed focus with the release of the results of the 2016 census that show yet another decline in home ownership rates, not only among the traditional first homeowner cohort of people in their late 20s or early 30s, but really all the way up to people in their 50s. I've long wondered why there hasn't been more anger among young people at the way in which the housing system has been in effect rigged against them by their parents' generation, but it would seem that instead of marching on the streets as young people would have done in the 70s or 80s, chanting, what do we like, want, like cheaper housing? When do we like, want it, like now, as young people might do, express their feelings today, they're, they're perhaps more quietly taking their revenge out on their parents' generation by refusing to move out of their homes and staying with their parents well into their 30s and expecting their meals cooked, their laundry done, and a blind eye to who they bring home at night. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm saying that facetiously, obviously. I think there is genuine angst among people in their 20s and 30s as to how they will achieve the same lifestyle and prosperity that their parents and grandparents have enjoyed. And I suspect, to be fair, there's also an increasing awareness among today's baby boomers that their gains in terms of housing wealth may well have been at the expense of their children's life chances, so that when defenders of negative gearing, such as Scott Morrison, say that negatively geared investors are just simply mums and dads seeking to get ahead, end of quote, the question which many people are beginning to recognise is, ahead of whom? And the answer is increasingly their own children and their children's peers, which may well be why the Labor Party's policy taken to last year's election of winding back the capital gains tax discount and restricting access to negative gearing didn't cost nearly as many votes as the Labor Party itself had feared and others had predicted. Uh, I think 
this will be a continuing issue between now and the next election and beyond. Indeed, and uh, it's very interesting that uh, Bill Shorten is taking very much the same line as uh, Jeremy Corbyn. It will be an interesting development. I mean, I I want to emphasise I don't support everything that the Labor Party is advocating here. I do support the measures that Chris Bowen, the shadow treasurer, announced in late July with regard to clamping down on the use of trusts as a way of minimising or reducing tax. But on the other hand, I don't support the Labor Party's proposal to keep the top tax rate at 49.5% or to impose the Medicare, the additional Medicare levy to fund the NDIS only on people in the top two tax brackets. Australia already has a highly progressive personal income tax scale. Our top tax rate isn't the highest in the Western world, to be sure, though it is high by the standards of English-speaking countries. What's striking is that it cuts in at what is, by international standards, a fairly low level of income for the top marginal rate. Here in Australia, you start paying the top marginal rate at an income of $180,000 taxable. In the UK, you don't start paying the top marginal rate until your income is something like £160,000 which is well over $300,000 in Australian terms. In most Australia, in most US states, you don't start, which which have their own state income taxes as well as federal income tax, you don't start paying the top marginal rate, which can be close to 50% in some states until your income is something like $450,000 US dollars. Even South Korea, which this week announced an increase in the top marginal income tax rate to 42%, you don't start paying it until your income is the equivalent of over 400,000 Australian dollars. So I don't think the cause of greater uh, reducing inequality will be served by further lifting the top rate of tax, which, as I say, is already paid on quite modest incomes by international standards. But I do very strongly support the notion of broadening the tax base so that all of the income earned by high income earners is appropriately taxed uh, rather than taxed preferentially or concessionally or not at all, as it sometimes is under current arrangements. Well, Saul, there's like all of that is fascinating and it means uh, it's going to be interesting to watch which way the Reserve Bank will be going. And thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure, as always, Leon. Thank you. Leon, now... What do you got for the news? Well, Gary, to start with, uh, Republican Party leaders have doubled down on their promise of tax reform even after the Senate's failure to pass even a scaled-down Obamacare repeal bill. The pledge is crucial after their failure to repeal Obamacare because the Republicans need some legislative success when they contest the 2018 midterm elections. And it means they will all be vigorously selling tax reform over the August recess. And House Speaker Paul Ryan and Kevin Brady, who's the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, made that commitment in separate interviews on Fox News Channel's Sunday Morning Futures. Both rejected White House strategist Steve Bannon's suggestion of paying for middle-class tax cuts with a new top rate of 44% for Americans who make more than $5 million a year. Brady has been providing lawmakers with material for tax cuts, including a calendar for August, with 31 reasons for tax reform and a pocket card that discusses how tax reform will benefit people. I wonder if it'll help the GOP to get a bit of legislation through. They need to. They certainly need to, and Trump needs to, because the cupboard has been bare. And four-star general John Kelly has been given a big, big job to clean out the stable. That's right, a huge job. And the question is uh, whether he will be able to manage Trump. The general feeling is that he won't, and uh, he'll, when he's had enough, he'll walk. 
Yes, and the other interesting piece of news that came in this morning is that the US is considering uh, sanctions on China. It's getting more and more serious, and it's a bit of a worry. What do you want to have sanctions on China for? It's a very big economy, and it'll just hurt the US as well. I assume that coincides with uh, the North Koreans launching Korean launching uh, missiles. Yes, the second big one, and people say that North Korea's got a, a clever policy, but I'm blown if I know what it is. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, to Australia, and the Reserve Bank of Australia kept the cash rate on hold at its August meeting, as the market expected. And it means the RBA board has left rates at the record low of 1.5% for the 11th straight meeting. And RBA Governor Philip Lowe in his statement warned that the stronger Australian dollar would have an impact on the Australian economy and said Amazon would hit retails, retails and keep inflation low. And after that statement, the uh, dollar went up to about 80 cents and uh, the RBA will clarify its position on the outlook for interest rates when it released its quarterly monetary policy statement on Friday. Yes, the the value of the Australian dollar is just curious. It's really curious. Opposition leader Bill Shorten has conceded that 200,000 trusts, which would be whacked with a minimum 30% tax on discretionary payments to trustees under a Labor government, were related to small businesses. But he said that's only a fraction of Australia's 3 million small businesses, and the tax is part of a crackdown on tax evasion and aims to address inequality. And in return, Bill has been vigorously accused of lying about the impact and value of the government's uh, proposed company tax reform. That's right, that's right. So let's just watch that space. Now, the Australian manufacturing sector has continued its strong performance with the latest Australian Purchasing Managers Index, or PMI, released by the Australian Industry Group, increasing 1 point to 56 in July. It's a 10th consecutive month of expansion for the sector. Any figure above 50 points to expansion, anything below is a contraction. Manufacturers in July pointed to increased demand from the construction and mining sectors, possibly reflecting commodity price increases. There was also strong demand from the agriculture sector for locally manufactured construction materials, machinery and equipment. And manufacturing was also boosted by demand coming from large government-funded projects in Victoria and New South Wales. On the downside, manufacturers were saying there were problems with soaring energy costs, higher raw material costs, the stronger Australian dollar, the departure of the automotive assembly industry and strong international competition and ongoing weakness in the retail sector. Now, new home sales in Australia's largest states have slumped to their lowest level since October 2013, according to the latest Housing Institute of Australia report. The HIA new home sales report found sales fell in both the detached house and multi-unit sides of the market. New home sales fell by 6.9% in June compared with the previous month and were 11.9% lower than the same period last year. New detached housing sales fell 5.8% and multi-unit sales crashed by a whopping 10.7%. At the same time, though, Australian building approvals have risen by an unexpected 10.9% in June, driven largely by a surge in apartment approvals, which soared a whopping 20.1%. And that was up from the 5.4% fall in mail. And it was also way above the median forecast growth of 1.5% from economists polled by Reuters. But if you look closely at those figures, Gary, I'm not so sure about the building approvals figures because it's all underpinned by apartments. That's right, and there's just about a glut of apartments in both Sydney and Melbourne already. Dwelling prices rose 1.5% across Australian capital cities according to the 9th, 2th, July 2017 CoreLogic Home Value Index. 
While prices bounced in most cities, the increase across the country was driven mainly by the 3.1% rise in Melbourne, the strongest monthly result. The results were also mixed across Australia with Brisbane dwelling values down 0.6%, Perth values 1.3% lower and Darwin down 1.2%. At the same time, there are signs the housing market growth is slowing down. While the month-on-month capital gains in June July has risen, the quarterly trend rate of growth is falling and the rolling quarterly pace of capital gains across combined capitals has slipped from 3.6% in February earlier this year to reach now 2.2% at the end of July. So long term, it's slowing down. Households say the rising costs of energy, fuel and even groceries combined with weak household incomes, underemployment and the prospect of interest rate rises have become their biggest financial worries. Emmy's Household Financial Comfort Report uh, found that 40% of households say the rising cost of necessities has seen their financial situations worsen over the last six months. Add to that the subdued income growth, which has seen 44% of households saying there's been no change in their income during the past financial year, and over a quarter of all households, or 27%, reporting income cuts in the past year. That's uh, risen to almost half the households earning less than $40,000. It's uh, 45%. Now, the survey also found that almost 40% of households currently renting or paying off a mortgage are worried about their ability to meet mortgage repayments or rent, and 40% of these households are estimated to be paying paying over 30% of their pre-tax income to a mortgage or rent. And there are also concerns about forecasts of interest rate rises next year. According to the report, a third or 31% of households expect to be worse off financially if the RBA raises the official cash rate by 1% from its record low of uh, 1.5%. So big problems if it goes up to 2.5%. Yeah, and you're looking at what amounts to almost stagnation in in consumer spending. That's right. And uh, that coincides with stagnation in the income coming in. And all of that, of course, coincides with the Household Income and Labor Dynamics in Australia report, that's the HILDA report from Melbourne University, showing Australian households are stuck in a rut and young people are confronting the double whammy of stagnating incomes and surging home prices. Not a good outlook. On the other hand, analysts are expecting a reasonably good profit reporting season with company results starting to roll in this week. The consensus view is that strong results in the resources sector will help push up earnings growth in 2016-17 by 13%. And in a note to clients, city analyst Tony Brennan and Mark Tomlin say increased infrastructure spending and a levelling off in the fall of mining investment will offset subdued levels of consumer spending and slowing housing activity. Now, downgrades have mostly come from consumer stocks and small cap companies. So they say profits of companies supplying building materials will be up with strong levels of housing construction and more infrastructure projects. The number of infrastructure projects is also expected to be good for engineering firms. On the other hand, subdued consumer spending is likely to hit retailers and companies in the ledger and gambling sector and supermarket profits are expected to reflect low price rises and strong competition. The other interesting piece of news, Gary, is that two-hour check-ins for domestic travellers are now the new norm at major Australian airports and heightened security following news of a terrorist cell allegedly planning to blow up a plane in Sydney. International travellers will have to arrive three hours before to allow for extra security checks. Now, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull said new arrangements with police, domestic intelligence agency ACO and the Office of Transport Security were being assessed following the arrest of four men over the weekend in connection with the alleged terror plot. 
and the four are being held without charge under Australia's anti-terror laws and investigators have a week to build their case against them. And there were long queues and delayed check-ins at Melbourne and Sydney Airport during the week with passengers arriving two hours early to get through security in order to board domestic flights. On Monday morning, the queue was already deep at 5am at Sydney Airport and by 8am it was stretching out the door. And finally, Gary, with the profit season starting, there are, there are the first of the company profit reports. Rio Tinto posted a 152% increase in earnings to $3.9 billion for the six months of June 30, boosted by earnings from its iron ore division. Rio also said it would pay an interim dividend of $1.10, that's US, $1.10, well up on the US $1.45 it paid for the first half of 2016. And it also announced $1 billion in share buybacks. That's terrific for Rio shareholders. Now, education provider Navitas reported an 11% drop in profit to $80.3 million, with revenue falling 5% and underlying earnings before interest tax, appreciation and amortisation down 5.8% at $155 million. The results reflected the closure of Macquarie and Curtin Sydney Colleges. Media Monitoring and content company Icentia, formerly known as Media Monitors, announced profit downgrades. It said it expected post-full-year underlying earnings before interest tax, depreciation and amortisation of $41.5 million, compared to previous guidance of $44 million. It said revenues come in at 155.1 million, down from the previous guidance of 162 million. And it's also writing down the value of its King Content Media business by 37.8 million to zero. And the King Content brand will be discontinued and will be rolled into Accenture's remaining content business. The company has also cut its headcount to its content marketing business. Debt collector and payday lender Credit Core posted a 20% growth in net profit after tax to 55.2 million. Genworth Mortgage Insurance reported a 34.7% fall in net profit to 88.7 million, down from 135.8 million the year before. ResMed posted a 22% increase in net income for the quarter of US 101.6 million, and its revenues jumped to US 556.7 million, a 7% increase. So snoring repair is uh, making a lot of money. That's right, that's right. So they're mixed figures and they're very, very interesting. And uh, next week we're going to be talking to Ken Waller from RMIT, and uh, he's be talking to us all about the Apex Study Centre at RMIT, which has just won a big contract with DFAT. Should be very interesting. And that's it for us this week, and we look forward to bring you all the business, finance, and economics news next week. If you want to more, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZZ or on Facebook. We look forward to talking to you next week.